It's Wednesday, January 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's inauguration day for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and there is a ton on their legislative agenda. The first days of the Biden administration will be packed with dealing with the pandemic and trying to administer 100 million vaccine doses in 100 days. They'll try to pass another COVID relief package, issue executive orders such as getting back into the Paris Agreement on climate change, and ending the emergency declaration at the southern border. Biden will also present an immigration bill with an eight-year pathway to citizenship for some undocumented immigrants. Lauren Egan, digital White House reporter at NBC News, joins us for what to expect in Biden's first 100 days. Next, could luxury mystery boxes be the future of high-end discount shopping? A new solution for selling overstock and off-season clothing has emerged in these mystery boxes, which can sell anywhere from $700 to $2,000. The only catch is that you don't know what's in the box until you open it. The high-end merch in these boxes is said to be two to three times the retail value of the box, but there's a chance that it could always be a bust. Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what these mystery boxes mean for the fashion economy. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And here we are today, my family and I, about to return to Washington to meet a black woman of South Asian descent to be sworn in as president and vice president of the United States. Joining us now is Lauren Egan, digital White House reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the tough go at it that President Joe Biden is going to have in his first days in office. Obviously, there's a ton of things going on. There's the coronavirus pandemic. We have this economy that is the result of that pandemic. We also have all the fallout from the Capitol Hill riots. And obviously, what is the Senate going to be doing as far as impeachment goes? So everybody's going to be pulled in all sorts of different ways. So, Lauren, tell us a little bit about what Biden's first 100 days could look like. There's kind of four categories that are going to define the first 100 days of Biden's administration. Uh, you touched on a few of them. The first one is the coronavirus pandemic. He has this huge COVID bill that he's going to be working to get through Congress. And wrapped up in that, you know, is his push for 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days, more stimulus money, more unemployment money. And then you have his day one executive orders that he's talked about. And that's going to we're going to start seeing that, you know, as soon as just hours after he is sworn in. A lot of that is going to be kind of to indicate a shift from the Trump administration. So really focused at rolling back some of the policies we saw under Trump, such as rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, ending the crisis at the border, rolling back some of the rollbacks Trump did on Obama environmental executive orders. And then you're going to see also kind of, I think, a surprise for some to see that Biden included in his first 100-day plans a big push for immigration. I think every four years, we kind of, you know, talk about immigration reform and a big overhaul to our immigration system. And it always kind of ends up falling flat on Capitol Hill. But Biden has said that he is going to introduce, starting on the day he's inaugurated, introduce a bill to Congress that would find a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people who are in the country who are on, undocumented. And that's the biggest kind of push we've seen for pathway to citizenship really since Reagan was president. And then, of course, you know, hanging over all of this is impeachment. And that's really going to dictate a lot of what can happen on the Hill, just because it's going to take up and kind of consume so much of Congress's time. And also keep in mind going on, on 
with all of this is Biden's need to confirm his cabinet members, which also eats up a chunk of time in the Senate. Let's continue to expand a a little bit there on the Senate's actions. You know, they're going to be super important. All of this, the split is 50-50 Democrats to Republicans. So Vice President Kamala Harris is going to probably be a a big fixture there, you know, maybe tie-breaking votes and whatnot. But yeah, definitely kind of splitting their time. I think Joe Biden said, can we do something? We're doing a half day on impeachment, half day on cabinet picks, because that's crucial. He needs to set up his cabinet so he can really start implementing his agenda. So that's going to be one of the first big steps. And, and you know, the question is, is, you know, how much bipartisanship are we going to be seeing when they're split 50-50 like that? That's right. You know, we're already starting to hear some pushback. Senator Hawley came out today pushing back against Biden's immigration plan. So he really doesn't have a whole lot of wiggle room right now, just because, you know, even in the House, the margin is so razor thin for Democrats that they just can't afford to lose anyone that might be kind of more on on the margins right there. And yeah, the Biden administration, you know, he has indicated that he wants to split his time 50-50, as you said, with cabinet and impeachment. But then that leaves a big question, where's time for all these other bills? Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of stuff to go through. I want to go touch back a little bit on coronavirus, what's going on there. Biden has a plan to administer 100 million COVID-19 vaccinations in the first 100 days. Uh, We've already seen how slow the rollout is for that. We have about 11 million doses that have been given so far. You know, maybe a little more. The numbers change uh, every day. But uh, Mm -hmm. that's going to be supremely important and very difficult. You know, he's asking for a lot of money for that, billions of dollars to go towards vaccination programs, testing, all of this stuff. And, you know, the Biden administration has or they've been very critical so far of how the Trump administration set up their vaccine rollout. They're already planning to, you know, kind of do an overhaul of, of what Trump, infrastructure Trump had in, even renaming Operation Warp Speed, um, renaming that whole program. We don't know the name of that yet, but I you know, anticipate they'll be announcing that soon. So, you know, they really are going to take a more federal approach to it. The Trump administration kind of left this up to the states. Biden has made clear that that is not the direction that he intends to go in. But, you know, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's a huge, huge task yeah. to undertake. And They're going to be, I think they got, you know, a little bit of a slower start than they would have liked just through the transition process and not getting some information from the Trump White House that they wanted early on in that process. So um, that's definitely going to be something that we're going to be keeping a close eye on. And the work on the economy, as we mentioned, everybody can agree that we need to get back on track with that. That's going to be a tough sell, too. The he wants a relief package that's over a trillion dollars. You know, more direct payments to people. I think he wants $1,400, $400 a week in unemployment, increasing the minimum wage to $15. That's going to be tough. So there's a lot of work to get to and uh, not much time. So we'll see how much they go. And as you mentioned earlier, too, you know, nobody would have thought maybe immigration would be at the top, but at least it signals what his priorities are. So lots of stuff to get through and uh, we'll see how, how much of this gets implemented. Lauren Egan, digital White House reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're buying a box at a certain price tier, you know, that's around $700, it's around $2,000. And in it, you're going to get one to three items or four to eight items, something along that those lines. And really, you could open that box and it could be a pair of socks and a pair of jeans. Joining me now is Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jacob. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. 
wanted to talk about this new, well, relatively new phenomenon, I guess you could call it, luxury mystery boxes. And this could be the future of discount shopping, you know, with the, a lot of retail store closures because of the pandemic. You know, a lot of companies couldn't offload some of the items they usually do to other retailers. So some companies got together and started compiling items into these luxury mystery boxes. So somebody will buy a box. They don't know what's in it until you get the package. And they do say that some of the items in these boxes could retail for two to three times as much what the box's price is. And you're getting, you know, high-end brands of things in these boxes. So, Jacob, start us off. Tell us what this whole notion is about. So this whole notion is kind of driven around this idea that there's a lot of merchandise floating around out there in the retail space, in the fashion world. You know, you go to any given store, you know, particularly here in America, and there's sales happening all the time. You hear from brands, they're having promotions all the time. But there's also this kind of cross-section, this kind of world of the fashion space that has all this surplus merchandise. It's kind of, again, just floating out there. And some of that is driven, you know, in the past year by the pandemic, you know, particularly early on the pandemic, there was a, a significant amount of brands were kind of noticing that, you know, people just weren't buying stuff. Um, there was not a need for, you know, higher fashion items. There was not a need, you know, for, for, for these kind of things that might make a statement out on the street. So these brands kind of saw themselves holding the bag a little bit on, on some of this merchandise. Now, to be sure, this is not a, a you know, COVID phenomenon. This is a topic that has been within fashion forever. What do you do with excess merchandise? You know, brands produce and they try really hard to produce to meet demand. Sometimes their supply outpaces that. So in the past, you know, we've seen brands, distributors, factories, even, you know, other department stores offloading merchandise or kind of selling merchandise through, you know, a discount retailer like a Century 21 or a Steinmart or, you know, something like the Guilt Group for a time was really quite good at this on, on the internet. What's happening now is this interesting marketplace where there's a lot of young folks, and I'm going to say young men in particular because it seems to be, you know, most appealing to men. But but these these two companies, Heat and Scarce, that have emerged in the past year or so, they will market to both men and women, and their focus is really on this section of brands that we kind of call, you know, luxury streetwear. It's brands like Off White. Casablanca, Rude, Palm Angels, Amiri. And it's kind of this aesthetic of hoodies and bomber jackets and graphically printed jeans and things of this nature. So kind of what you would deem mildly ostentatious clothing that's designed <laughs> to be worn on the street. It's not necessarily designed to be worn at a border. And that clothing is now through these companies being discounted and packaged in a way that the buyer doesn't know what they're getting. So you're buying a box at a certain price tier, you know, that's around $700, it's around $2,000. And in it, you're going to get one to three items or four to eight items, something along that those lines. And really, you could open that box and it could be a pair of socks and a pair of jeans. Um, or you could open it and, you know, if you fit a higher tier, it could be a jacket, a sweater, jeans, and, and, and you know, more enticing items there. What really this whole thing is doing is preying on or appealing to, rather, to, to use a kinder term, what I would deem to be a real brand bias for this consumer. They want the brand. Right. They're really keen on getting off-white. They're really keen on getting Palm Angels. And, and these brands might not be familiar at all to your listener, but they have a lot of clout. 
within this fashion space, you know, for this certain consumer. So to them, it's like, you know, I will pay whatever. I don't know what I'm really getting. I have an option to select my absolute favorite brand. And these companies say they'll do their best to put one item from that brand on that list in the box. And, you know, if they get a pair of Rico and socks out of it, or they're really lucky and they get a sweater out of it, they're probably going to be happy regardless. They just kind of want that brand name. And and at that point, you know, you're just hoping for the lottery, right? You're just wishing that you're going to get some of these standout items and you just don't know what you're going to get. These companies do offer returns. Mm. The company Heat says they get about 10 to 15% of boxes return. Scarce says about 5% return rate. So it's not like you're stuck with the items, but if you're going to return something, you got to return the whole box. So you don't get to keep just a little bit of it. And as you mentioned, you know, one of these boxes can be 700 bucks. Another box can be about $2,000. And I would say in this age of we've become as, as internet consumers so used to, oh, you know, free returns and really easy returns and things of that nature. These returns are a little bit complex. You know, they, you have to return the whole thing. You have to pay for the shipping fee. So it is a little bit of a risk. Now, to that end, these customers that have bought from these services, they like that risk. They kind of, there's something about that that is really enticing to them. The secondhand market for this form of clothing is pretty robust. You know, you can go on sites like Grailed or eBay or Depop or The Real Real and find these brands and find items from them that are cheaper than retail. They're going to be older items. They're not going to be brand new. They might not have the tags on it, things of that nature. But you can find these brands for cheaper elsewhere. What this whole model does is it has this kind of gamified appeal to it. And one thing that I kind of noticed and that has been, you know, in my reporter's notebook for some time is this idea of unboxing videos on YouTube. And again, it might not be something that your listener is 100% familiar with, but on YouTube, there's this whole world of unboxing videos and, you know, they can be for any kind of consumer item. You know, there's a very famous story about a kid who he opens like children's toys and has millions of views. Yeah, Ryan, I think his videos. name is Ryan or something like that. And, 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 correct. And you're right. I went through some of these videos, these unboxing videos, the people that are buying it get very excited when they get that one lucky item. There's even a whole thing of people reacting to the unboxing video saying, well, this one's probably not worth it. Or, hey, you got a handbag and you got something else. It is totally worth it. So it is kind of uh, has this own online presence of its own. In the end, I just want to ask, though, so what does this say about the fashion economy in this sense? People, like you mentioned, maybe primarily young men are really attached Mm -hmm. to some of these high-end brands. But what else does it signal for the fashion economy? Well, what it signals is, is, is kind of, one, this brand attachment, and this is something that we've kind of been watching the fashion industry for a while. Uh, you know, you might remember or have, you know, heard tell of, you know, back in the 1980s and, and, and kind of into the, into the 90s a little bit within the high fashion space, people were very logo-driven. There was a lot of logo mania happening. They like to get the brand. They like to show off the brand. They were really keen on that. This isn't quite what we're seeing in terms of, you know, just saying, look at me, I've got my Gucci belt, or look at me, I've got my Ferragamo loafers. There's a little bit higher thought that goes into this. It's, it's more like these these consumers are really happy to just buy into the brand vision. You know, whatever they can get from the brand, they know it's going to embody the certain aesthetic that they're going for. And I will say often that aesthetic is kind of coming from somewhere in pop culture or something they've seen seen on Instagram. You know, they saw someone they like wearing this clothing or or like wearing this brand and they really want to get in on it. What it also kind of tells us is this idea that newness might not be a real 
driving factor anymore. What I mean by that is, is, you know, contrary to a Century 21 or a Steinmark or things of this nature, a filings basement, Nordstrom rack, you go in and the clothes are laid out pretty poorly and they're not very romantic. You know, you're kind of looking at the bedraggled <laughs> remains of yeah. a couple seasons ago or, you know, a couple of years ago or even a few months ago. And there's really little care. It's like it's gone from that main department store where it was new and shiny to suddenly it's lost all of its luster. What these brands are pretty good at, Heat and Scarce, these two companies, is packaging this stuff and really making it look enticing. Their Instagram's super slick. They've partnered with some quote-unquote cool influencers that have a big reach and have made these brands kind of seem sexy in a way with, with you know, the way that they're presenting this material, that you know, presenting these items. But in terms of how the consumer is actually responding, you know, I spoke to some of these customers, and in a couple cases, I would ask them, you know, do you think at all this is strange or this is weird that you're buying used or not used, I'm sorry, you're buying old merchandise, that you're effectively buying something that is not, you know, the hottest thing off the runway. It might be a few months old. It might be a couple of years old. And they didn't care at all. Didn't even seem to cross their mind. And I think that that's an interesting reflection of where we've gotten to with where a lot of young people are shopping for this type of clothing. You know, again, there's all of these resale sites and all of these secondhand sites out there. And there's this whole big conversation within high fashion right now that's not about vintage. No one, people don't really like to use the word vintage, but they love using the word archival. You know, it's like we've (laughs) gone from like, like, you know, it's all you know, in the you branding from and like, repackaging of it. <laughs> it. It's all in the branding. You know, you go from like antique to thrifted to to vintage and yeah. now we're on to archival. And it's this idea that you're buying this clothing and the fact that it's in the past, the fact that it might not be even accessible now actually has a lot of weight to this right. section of consumer. And this guy I interviewed Devin Knight, one of the customers, he bought, you know, a couple boxes off of Heat. And he had said, you know, what I liked about it was this idea that I was getting something that didn't have to necessarily be new, that, you know, someone might not be able to have. And this was kind of what he was saying was this notion that you couldn't walk into, you know, Nordstrom's or you couldn't go onto a boutique website like Essence right now and see the same clothes. I thought that was really interesting. This isn't even... We're not even talking a year, five years, 10 years. We're talking a matter of months even that this hasn't been in a store. And he was really keen on it because it showed to him that this brand that he liked, it was something that not everyone would necessarily have. Wow. I mean, well, the whole thing is interesting. As I said, I went down the hole of the unboxing videos. It's kind of fun to watch, you know, the excitement yeah. and then kind of the duds that sometimes you get out there. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, other brands or other uh, retailers, other companies try to pick up some of this model. We are starting to kind of see that in terms of, you know, like particularly for Heat, which has been around for longer, they have had a lot of brands kind of come to them and they've had more open collaborations, if you will, saying, oh, we're partnering with Peter Ackerman or we're partnering with this brand represent out of London. And they're kind of doing it in tandem and out in the open. And it's, it's interesting that they're willing to just say, this is happening in real time. Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.